so I want to address this. So here's what Mike said. He said, hey, Glenn, I hope that I can send you this somewhat critical message and have it received in the spirit which it has sent. I've been a listener since almost the beginning of Infants on Thrones. I've been a Patreon supporter from the moment you switched over. And even though I rarely listen anymore, I still have my Patreon account active because I very much appreciate the years of free therapy that you and the other infants provided to me. But I hate this episode so much. I hate this episode, hate this episode so, much. so much. The false belief that the election has somehow been stolen is a threat to me, my children, my country, and our entire way of life. To approach it as, let's all not get too self-righteous, is the kind of thing that has me yelling at you through my headphones the entire time that I'm listening to your podcast. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills! Is there really no objective reality worth concerning ourselves with? Is there really no objective reality, no objective reality. worth concerning ourselves with? There has to be a way for us to be sympathetic to people who have been lied to and have believed the lies, while also calling out the lies for what they are. The there are fine people on both sides argument just can't fly anymore. Just can't fly anymore. I will say that I do recognize in myself that self-righteous person that you described in your two examples, and I don't love that about myself. And I don't love that about myself. I would love to find a way to not feel like such a self-righteous asshole all the time these days, but I'm simply not willing to do it at the cost of my intellectual honesty. Intellectual honesty. Intellectual honesty. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. Even by end this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 705 objective reality and intellectual honesty. And it's a response to a listener email to a Patreon supporter named Mike, who really did not like the last episode, 704, Sam Harris, Captain Moroni, and the fictional title of Self-Righteous Liberty. So I'm going to take some time to respond to Mike, who I really appreciate. You'll hear it. And uh, I recorded it while I was sitting outside at a lake. So you're going to hear some ducks. I hope you like ducks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Infants on Thrones. All right. I'm sitting in one of my favorite places. This is... Uh, I grew up in Arizona, a neighborhood called Dobson Ranch. And there's this man-made lake. I mean, there's several man-made lakes. There's this one in particular where there's these docks that I used to play here. I was a kid, you know, from like probably age two to nine, maybe. A lot of memories here. I love this. So I'm just on my lunch break. 
I want to respond to a couple of things. I, I, um, I've heard from a few people. I, I just released the uh, episode 704, Sam Harris, Captain Moroni, and the fictional title of Self-Righteous Liberty. <laughs> I released it yesterday and already have had uh, quite a few responses. And a few people have told me that they really loved it. And then there's one guy in particular, Mike, um, hated it but communicated that to me in the nicest way and very thorough. And so I I want to sit down. I've been thinking about this all night since I read what Mike sent to me uh, last night. It's just, it's constantly been on my mind. So I've taken some notes and I'm sitting down here on my lunch break. I'm going to record some thoughts because I'm sure that there's other listeners out there that feel the same way that Mike did. And so I want to address this. So here's, here's what Mike said. He said, Hey, Glenn, I hope that I can send you this somewhat critical message and have it received in the spirit which it has sent. I love you so much. Thanks, Mike. I love you too. I've been a listener since almost the beginning of Infants on Thrones. I've been a Patreon supporter from the moment you switched over. And even though I rarely listen anymore, I still have my Patreon account active because I very much appreciate the years of free therapy that you and the other infants provided to me. But I hate this episode so much. The reason that virtually anybody leaves Mormonism is because we believe that there is an underlying reality that is available to anybody who wants to see it, and that the church's version of events doesn't really conform to that underlying reality. Your approach here of Captain Moroni's truth is his truth just ignores the fact that there is actually an underlying foundational reality that we all can choose to live in, but for a variety of reasons, choose not to. I'm not saying that I don't live in my own fictions. I'm also not saying that his fiction isn't useful to him in some way. As a matter of fact, I'm incredibly impressed and even a little jealous of what believing this bullshit allows a group of people to accomplish. But it's not a fiction like the power of a state or the value of money that allows everybody to benefit by buying into its reality. It's a verifiably false, incredibly destructive position that doesn't conform to reality. Not all fictions are created equal. The earth isn't flat either, regardless of whatever amount of comfort a flat earther derives from the community provided by believing such a thing. And believing that the earth is flat prevents us from the benefits of knowing that the earth is actually round. My phone's GPS wouldn't work if we all took the position that, well, a flat earther's reality is his reality because of the life that he's lived. We have, we have to actually recognize scientific facts for that benefit to become available to us. In this case, the false belief that the election has somehow been stolen is a threat to me, my children, my country, and our entire way of life. To approach it as, let's all not get too self-righteous, is the kind of thing that has me yelling at you through my headphones the entire time that I'm listening to your podcast. Is there really no objective reality worth concerning ourselves with? If that's the case, I should really go back to church because the world was much simpler when I was a believer. There has to be a way for us to be sympathetic to people who have been lied to and have believed the lies while also calling out the lies for what they are. Donald Trump is a narcissistic, pathological liar who only cares about his own self-interest. Let's call it like it is. 
QAnon is a dangerous personality cult that is bleeding into one of our major political parties, and it threatens the very existence of our country. The there are fine people on both sides argument just can't fly anymore. We have to find a way to get down to bedrock truths and rebuild our society on them going forward. Perhaps where I disagree with you most, and where you can help me see your point of view, is that I think we are millimeters away from our democracy being in ashes right now, rather than having survived this coup attempt. If only a few more members of the House happen to be Republicans right now, they may have successfully overturned the results of a free and fair election just because they don't like the results. How does that not terrify you? You ask at the end of the episode if the way that we responded shouldn't be seen as a strength of our democracy. I think it should only be seen as dumb luck that we happen to have enough members of the opposition party in positions of power to have prevented the complete overthrow of our democracy by overambitious politicians willing to sell their souls to Trump for their own ability to become president one day. What if this had happened in 2018 rather than 2020, when the Senate and House both were controlled by Republicans? I honestly don't know what would have happened. I will say that I do recognize in myself that self-righteous person that you described in your two examples, and I don't love that about myself. But I'm also not willing to sacrifice my country just to not upset anybody. And that's what I feel like this episode is doing to me. I do believe that facts and reality exist and are available to anybody who cares enough to search for them. And I think it's a dangerous thing to not recognize that when discussing the state of our country. Anyway, I'm genuinely interested to hear where you disagree with me. I would love to find a way to not feel like such a self-righteous asshole all the time these days, but I'm simply not willing to do it at the cost of my intellectual honesty. Thank you for all the comfort you've provided me over the years. I hope that you still feel my love, even as I tell you that I think you're wrong and just a little bit crazy, smiley face. Thanks for putting your time and effort into this podcast. Whew. All right, Mike. Well, man, thank you for spending the time. That must have taken you a while to sit down and gather your thoughts and put them out the way that you did. So let me summarize. Um, Here's what I think that you're saying. I think your overall question was, is there no objective reality worth concerning ourselves with? So I want to talk about that. And then you make several claims in here. I, I counted 10. <laughs> There's probably more, but here's, here's what I see as your claims. One, that there is an underlying reality that is available to anyone who wants to see it. Two, that the church's version of events doesn't really confirm to that or conform to that underlying reality. Three, that my approach of Captain Moroni's truth is his truth just ignores the fact that there is actually an underlying foundational reality that all can choose to live in, but for a variety of reasons, choose not to. Claim four, that the fiction of the Mormon church is not a fiction like the power of a state or the value of money that allows everyone to benefit by buying into its reality. It's verifiably false, incredibly destructive position that doesn't conform to reality and that not all fictions are created equal. Claim five, you gave the flat earther GPS example and you said that we have to actually recognize scientific facts for the benefits to become available to us. Claim number six, 
The false belief that the election has somehow been stolen is a threat to you, to your children, to your country, and to your entire way of life. That Donald Trump's lies and QAnon threaten the very existence of our country. Claim 7. There has to be a way for us to be sympathetic to people who have been lied to and who have believed the lies while also calling out the lies for what they are. Claim 8. That the there are very fine people on both sides of the argument just can't fly anymore. We have to find a way to get down to bedrock truths and rebuild our society on them going forward. Claim 9. That we are millimeters away from our democracy being in ashes right now rather than having survived this coup attempt. You're basically saying that our democracy is not strong. It's only dumb luck that we didn't experience the complete overthrow of our democracy by the opposition party, the Republicans. And then finally, claim 10, you say that you would love to find a way to not feel like such a self-righteous asshole all the time, but you're simply not willing to do it at the cost of your intellectual honesty. Okay, so that's what I'm taking away from what you said to me. And I'm going to address each one of those points. And it's going to take a little while. (laughs) So I hope you're sitting by a really nice lake with some ducks around you like I am right now that all want to be part of the show. And um, I'm going to focus on objective reality and intellectual honesty. So uh, objective reality. Of course, there's objective reality. I, I really don't know what it was that I said in that episode that made you think that I was saying that there isn't objective reality. Um, So let's start the way that I see objective reality. And I'm going to do the whole uh, sound of music thing. Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very nice place to start. Very good place to start. There was a big bang. I don't know really what that was or what caused it, but just like in one instant, 13.8 billion years ago, boom, all of the fundamental particles or at least initial fundamental particles of existence came into existence and that energy, whatever that was that banged out into and created this universe has been evolving ever since. And it's been evolving in the form of that fish that just jumped up over there, but stars solar systems, galaxies, you know, the the suns create the atoms that then become carbon and nitrogen and things, you know, like all of these things that come together. And then we've got this planet Earth that's in this nice Goldilocks zone, not too close to the sun that we're scorched, not too far away, you know, we're in this really nice place. And at some point, life evolved on this planet. Conditions became just perfect, whatever they were for single-celled organisms of life to evolve and compete for resources and learn and grow and just co-evolve with each other and co-evolve with the environment. Is, is this seeming strange to you that I'm... I mean, we're, we're talking about objective reality. These are facts, right? That the human brain that we have, our entire nervous system, has been evolving this way And it could trace its evolution all the way back to that single-celled organism or those single-celled organisms, whatever, the the beginning of life on this planet. It's evolved into at least 8 billion different species of life. We're one of them. But the process, the mechanism of evolution, what we carry in every cell of our body, in our DNA, we carry the genetic 
I don't know what it is. It's like passing a baton from generation to generation to generation. And we inherit these instincts, like human, like deeply ingrained survival instincts. And they go back millions of years. It's only recently that we started using language to talk and to create stories and fictions and have the kind of technology that we have that we're able to communicate with each other the way that we are right now. But yes, there is an objective reality. There are facts. This is underlying our entire existence. And understanding that is incredibly important. Absolutely important. Now, I I read your email, Mike, last night. And... um, I just, like I said, I I kept thinking about it. And I I watched this documentary that a friend of mine recommended um, uh, called BBC Life. It's a series, you know, with David Attenborough talking about nature. And this one was about plants. And it was just absolutely fascinating. Because you, you you, you think about this fact that every single living thing on this planet evolved from that original single-celled organisms you know we, we all share this planet and these things together and so i i look at those nature documentaries i love watching those nature nature documentaries i always see things that i can identify with even with plants like when when was it that mammals or animals broke off of plants i don't know how long ago that was but we do have common ancestors together And we certainly share a common world and a common environment where we've been evolving. So looking at, you know, plants also have to compete for limited resources. And how do they do that? I mean, how do we do it? How do we compete for our limited resources? There's there's ways that evolution has taught us, given us these instincts. So uh, two two of these plants I want to talk about. I don't know what the first one was called. But it grew on the side of, uh, like, water, and it has these little sticky, sweet things that attract mosquitoes and other insects. And they'll, the mosquitoes will get onto the sticky substance, and then the plant, like, folds in on itself, and it, it just kind of, like, sucks the blood. It's almost like, like how a spider would suck the blood of an insect. But this is a plant that's doing it. And then it discards the carcass, and it gets ready for another one. It was fascinating watching this. Um, and, and what is it that attracts those insects? It's this sweet fragrance. It's, it's beautiful to see. Uh, it, it just attracts and it draws these, these prey in. <laughs> and Venus flytraps. It spent a lot of time talking about Venus flytraps and how they do a very similar thing. The Venus flytrap. Like the sundew, it makes itself very attractive oozing nectar across the brim of each leaf. But any visiting insect had better watch out for these six tiny hairs. This fly has to tread carefully. If it strikes one hair, it can carry on feeding, but a timer has been set. A second strike in less than 20 seconds and the fly is doomed. An electrical impulse is triggered and the leaf snaps shut in just a fraction of a second. 
The tips locked together like prison bars. If the fly is very big or very small, it may just manage to escape. But most are trapped. And die. Ten days later, the trap reopens. All that remains is a husk. The plant has finished its meal and resets itself for its next victim. But what was interesting is that they also rely, you know, it, th these insects that they're feeding off of also pollinate the plant. So there's certain times and seasons where they need to tone down eating the, uh, <laughs> destroying and eating these insects and allow these insects to pollinate and uh, so that the plants can reproduce. It's just it's just fascinating. So I'm I'm watching this and I'm thinking about your email, Mike, and I'm thinking about objective reality, and I'm thinking about what Sam Harris has said about the siege on the Capitol, and you know, all of these things. And it starts to make sense to me that our species must have. And again, I'm. I'm just exposing my mind. This is the way that I see things. I'm not saying this is objective reality. This is my subjective reality. This is how I'm understanding and interpreting facts that I see in the world. So take it for what it is. That it seems to me that our species, before we became Homo sapien, however long we go back, we, we had similar tactics for survival and competing for resources that other forms of life have. And there's things that we do that are beneficial to the environment around us. There's things that we do that exploit it and destroy it. And, you know, like having a balance is really what we all want. And our, our ecosystem just kind of provides that all the time anyway. And life is really, really robust. Life, life finds a way to adapt to whatever conditions are around it. You know, watching these insects pollinate these flowers going back and forth. And then the next thing it showed saguaro cactuses with their blossoms that bloom at night because it's too, like, scorching. The sun's too scorching in the day for them to, to bloom. So they bloom at night, and it attracts not insects but bats. So now you've got these flying mammals instead of insects that are doing the same function. They're pollinating the, the, the cactuses. It's just, it's just fascinating the way that nature works. And... So it makes sense to me that somewhere in our DNA, there is some kind of genetic memory, this instinct, that warns us of sticky, sweet-smelling things that could be really attractive that are drawing us in, but actually might close in on us and destroy us. So the, the, the species of life that were able to recognize those things and avoid it past that recognition and that kind of like alarm system, that fear that we have. I think it's in our amygdala in our brain, the fight or flight response, where we go, okay, something's not, something's not right here. Let's, let's get on alert. There's some danger out there. We've got to have some kind of genetic memories in there and, and that we're triggering each other all the time with this stuff. And some of the things that we're triggering is based on 
real, actual threats, and other things are, well, they're not real, actual threats, but they feel like real, actual threats. They seem like real, actual threats. It doesn't really matter if it's, if it's real or imagined. The impact of the brain, the amygdala, we're going to go into that fight-or-flight response. It's going to send, what is it, cortisol that is the stress? I don't I mean, There's people that understand this stuff better than I do. The human brain is a network of approximately 100 billion neurons. Different experiences create different neural connections which bring about different emotions. And depending on which neurons get stimulated, certain connections become stronger and more efficient, while others may become weaker. This is what's called neuroplasticity. Someone who trains to be a musician will create stronger neural connections that link the two hemispheres of the brain in order to be musically creative. Virtually any sort of talent or skill can be created through training. Rudiger Gam, who was a self-admitted hopeless student, used to fail at basic math and went on to train his abilities and became a famous human calculator capable of performing extremely complex mathematics. Rationality and emotional resilience work the same way. These are neural connections that can be strengthened. Whatever you are doing at any time, you are physically modifying your brain to become better at it. Since this is such a foundational mechanism of the brain, being self-aware can greatly enrich our life experience. Specific neurons and neurotransmitters, such as norepinephrine, trigger a defensive state when we feel that our thoughts have to be protected from the influence of others. If we are then confronted with differences in opinion, the chemicals that are released in the brain are the same ones that try to ensure our survival in dangerous situations. In this defensive state, the more primitive part of the brain interferes with rational thinking, and the limbic system can knock out most of our working memory, physically causing narrow-mindedness. We see this in the politics of fear, in the strategy of poker players, or simply when someone is stubborn in a discussion. No matter how valuable an idea is, the brain has trouble processing it when it is in such a state. On a neural level, it reacts as if we're being threatened, even if this threat comes from harmless opinions or facts that we may otherwise find helpful and could rationally agree with. I, I just, I've, I've seen this over the last several years, I'm sure you have too, as the internet has become more popular, social media, we're so much more aware of how many problems there are in the world that we, we just weren't before. And what is that doing to our nervous systems? It's, it's freaking us out. Some of it is very real and we need to address it. Some of it, we need to kind of tone down a little bit. Because when we get into that fight or flight response, I think it's norepinephrine that actually narrows. Like, like what it does is, is it, all of the range of possibilities that we could think or behave, it kind of like narrows down to these things that like our brain is telling us we need to do this for survival. And if it's a real threat, good. If it's not a real threat, well, then it's dangerous because, you know, you could 
shoot an intruder that coming into your house that is really just your friend or you know something you know like because you're afraid so knowing how to make a distinction between what's real what's a real threat and what's not a real threat is really important really important and part of being a human being and communicating is having this mind that is full of stories full of fictions full of thoughts and that's where we have to sort out what's real what's not real what's true what's not true so is there objective reality absolutely there's objective reality is there also subjective reality damn straight there's subjective reality the, the whatever i'm looking at the world and i think is going on and i'm carrying this around in my own head that that is a reality it's a subjective reality and it might be different from objective reality but it's it's still a kind of reality that can't be ignored and i'm not saying that you should ignore objective reality to respect subjective reality that's that's maybe the big difference you don't have to throw one out for the other and then of course there's intersubjective realities where you have groups of people that share subjective realities and that's where you have the kinds of fictions that Yuval Harari talks about in Sapiens where you have like the example that you gave Mike about a state or money um, you know these things that people bind by binds people together so Object, that's my spiel on objective reality. I'll just pause for a moment. Objective reality. It, do you have a problem with what I said? Does it seem to you like I'm telling you that it doesn't matter if people think things are the wrong way? That like it. It does matter. It does matter. But it, you can't just go. Well, this shouldn't be. So we got to get rid of it. How? How, how are we going to get all of these different subjective realities tuned in to the same objective reality? How is that going to happen? Especially when we're all so pissed off at each other. It, it seems to me, and, and now we're going to get into the intellectual honesty part of this, because it seems to me, if I'm being intellectually honest with myself, that there are so many groups of people out there that want to be heard they, they're really legitimately afraid and concerned and worried and they want to be heard but it doesn't seem like there's very, very many people out there that want to hear them that really want to listen and really want to go okay I, I'm going to put down my own stuff and engage you where you are so I can really understand what you're about it, it, and I think this is a, an expression of that amygdala that fight or flight where we feel like there's a threat and we feel like, okay, these people are our enemies now. Are they really? That, that's what we, we've got to find that out. And that's what my, my episode was about, was trying to say, now, these things that we're thinking about what's going on, is it true or is it not? Now, I had three experiences before recording that episode. And, and, and each one of these experiences played a role in my thought process that went into making that episode. So the first one, I was talking with this woman who's the oldest of eight siblings. She's left the church. Her siblings haven't. I think you know, one has, but the, the rest haven't. And they're very, very devout. V very devout to the church, very devout to 
conservative politics and um, one one of the the nieces actually flew out to um, to DC to be part of the the protest and and so when I was talking with this woman she was really upset about her siblings and her niece and you know these people that are they, they just are unreachable as Sam Harris put it and as I'm talking with her I'm I could see and I could feel her how distraught she was how much she wants to have connection with her siblings but because she's not in the church and they are in the church there's just this divide and she feels like the divide's getting wider and doesn't know how to bridge it because they're just kind of like a lost cause and I can't help, as I'm listening to this, I, and I recognize my own judgmental mind that's going, well, you know, maybe maybe you just need to lighten up. <laughs> and maybe you need to be more open. You, you want to express your love to them, so do. Instead of spending time showing them where they're wrong about things, if, if they're not receptive to it, what's the point? If, if that's just driving more of a wedge between you, then that's not the right approach. There's got to be a diff- another kind of approach. Do you know why they feel the way that they do? Or are you just making assumptions? And does it really even matter? I don't, you know, so anyway, so that was one experience. It was a big experience for me. And then there was, were, were two others that were a, a little uh, smaller. But, but one, I was, I was with a coworker and I was talking about the, the siege on the Capitol. And it was the day that uh, Trump was impeached for the second time. And I mentioned something like this to her, and she went, oh, I don't know why people won't just leave him alone. And immediately, my, <laughs> my alarm bells went off and going, oh, wait a minute. I thought I was talking to somebody who we're on the same side, that we see things in a similar way. Now I'm seeing that we're not. And I had that like initial jolt of like, am I in enemy territory here? And so I just, I recognized that in myself, and I went, oh, okay. She goes, she goes, oh, you're a liberal, aren't you? <laughs> I'm like, okay. So tell me what you, what, what do you think? What, what do you think about what's going on? And she said, well, I, I think that um, I like Donald Trump because he doesn't waste any time with people's feelings. He just really cares about making things better. And I'm listening to that going, wow, that is not how I see Donald Trump at all. And of course, then I get into my own little self-righteousness stuff about uh, I'm right, she's wrong, I, I need to convince her. But I know I can't convince her. And this is a person that I need to work with. And I do have a good relationship with her. And so, okay, she feels this way. I don't get. I don't understand how any woman could not just absolutely be like like recoil at Donald Trump. It doesn't make any sense to me. But it does to her. And she's living with it and she's comfortable with it. And what can I do? I don't know. What, what can I do to be intellectually honest in that situation? I just... Okay, tell me, tell me more about what you think, what you feel. All right, this is obviously not an area where we're going to agree on. And, uh, you know, I... I don't really see, like, what is the danger? What is the problem? What, in this first case with this woman and her siblings, what is the real danger of there being disagreements and things? What is the real danger in the niece going to 
to DC and being part of the reality, you know. When I had that conversation, I said, well, people died in that thing. Yes, right. So did Denise do it? Did she kill them? Did she? I mean, I just don't understand how you connect the dots in those ways, except that we're so worked up. Our anxious system is so on hyper alert. Anyway, so that first two. And then the third one, I, I was getting my hair cut and I was just talking with my hairstylist and asked her what she thought about what was going on and another surprise it just surprised me it surprised me because this woman she's you know got tattoos all over all over her body she's got like different colored hair she's hispanic uh very like new agey kind of ethos you know her 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 studio, her hair studio is, is filled with plants and like mushrooms. <laughs> and like when the first time I walked in there, I said, you look like you've sat in ayahuasca ceremonies. And she hadn't, but she was interested in it. And I, I just want to interrupt for a minute as I'm listening back to what I recorded earlier. Because the reason that I gave all those descriptions, uh, and, and maybe it's implied, but I want to be really explicit, is because I have these prejudices about what it means if somebody has a bunch of tattoos or this kind of colored hair or, you know, all of these different things that I was reading. And this is based on things that I've experienced in the past and conclusions that I make. And guess what? I was wrong. <laughs> I was carrying around these assumptions, these prejudices in my mind about what these symbols meant. And I was wrong. So let me tell you about how I was wrong. So... I'm sitting there and I'm talking with her and she starts telling me similar things to this other girl, this, this co-worker of mine, that she just, she doesn't understand why people are going after Trump like this and that Joe Biden, like, I mean, he has Alzheimer's. She told me that Joe Biden has Alzheimer's and that if there's ever been a puppet, he's a puppet and she just doesn't trust whatever mechanisms are going on that's that's puppeting him and then you know i just i i was in that same position i'm like okay now she's got sharp scissors that are close to my neck i gotta be careful <laughs> in what i say about this because i don't agree with i joe, joe biden has alzheimer's what and then she asked me you know what was my source of news and she told me how she didn't trust anything mainstream and started recommending some like other news. I just really kind of shut off at that point and was more in the kind of like, I, I really truly want to be able to look at any person that I'm ever having a conversation with and say, uh, that's really interesting what you're sharing with me. I, I really love it and I appreciate it. <laughs> that's my goal. How? How do you do that in this climate? And in what Sam Harris talks about, this ecology of this unhealthy ecology, this unhealthy ecosystem of ideas. And I get surprised when I walk around and people that I think I know, and then I find out, okay, well, no, they're on the other team. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's my mind interpreting. Are there really teams? Does that really make us enemies? Each other? There's times where it feels like it. But there's so many ways that we work with each other and we support each other. You know, like the, the bats and the saguaro cactus that we're, we're helping each other in so many ways. 
And the other part of that objective reality about evolution that I think is really, really important. And when we look at our own bodies, the trillions of eukaryotic cells in our bodies that at one point in time in our evolutionary past were their own individual living organisms. You know, they, they came together by cooperating, by joining together, cooperating, diversifying their functions to create larger, more complicated organisms. We see that in every form of life around us. And there's lessons there about the value and the power of cooperation. So I want to be intellectually honest too. How, I, and I don't see a contradiction between intellectual honesty and really asking myself, are the things that I believe true or not? In fact, I think that's the definition. I think that's the, the way of becoming intellectually honest is to really be vigilant about the things that I think, the things that I hold in my mind. So when I come across somebody who sees something differently, what do I do to be intellectually honest? You know, I, I recognize that there are very complicated reasons why we see things differently. I, I'm aware in that situation that they think that they're right and that I'm wrong. And I know that they're not going to convince me to change my view. So when I flip that around, I go, you know, I also think that I'm right and that they're wrong. So I'm not going to be able to convince them to change their view. How? How would I do that? We've evolved along the same genetic path and we have nearly identical nervous systems. It's like a computer hardware. But we're running very different software programs because of so many different complicated reasons. And we've got this fight or flight response. We've got this norepinephrine that narrows the mind. So what, what is the solution to all of this? And am I talking about like a global solution for everybody? Or am I really just going to focus on those areas that I have even a little bit of control over? <laughs> because how much of this biologically evolved hardware of my nervous system do I really have control over? I mean, this is another one of these Sam Harris things, talking about free will and choice. How much do I really have control over and how much don't I? And that's really important to understand and figure out. And that's what I'm trying to do. I, I haven't got it figured out. I'm just trying. And I'm, I'm sharing on the podcast the things that I'm learning and the things that I think are working for me and then get pushback from people. I love it. That's what I want. So what is the solution? I, as I see the solution, it's to weed out the untruths. It's to weed out the exaggerations, the unnecessary exaggerations, the things that are untrue, and to turn down the volume on the fight or flight response in my own mind. And I can't do that for anybody but myself. And it's a struggle just for me to do it myself. And I want to cut in here again and add a little bit more to what I'm saying here about unnecessary exaggerations. There was an episode that we did many years ago, Bob Caswell's superlative disorder episode. I don't know if you remember that or not. I, I posted it on, on Patreon, if any of you want to go to Patreon and hear it again, in, in a, another response that I gave to the, uh, the recent episode. But I'm going to play that for you here, because when I heard these superlatives from Sam who I respect so much. 
I, like, I respect who he is, what he does so much. And I hear this unnecessary exaggeration that I feel like is poisoning a mind. I, I feel like it has a negative impact on a mind to have these unnecessary superlative exaggerations. So I want to play for you this clip that shows you what I mean by that. And then I'm going to go back to my conversation sitting by the lake with the ducks and, and tell you about some of the books that I've been reading. What I coined was, is called superlative disorder. Superlative is... It's associated with hyperbole, the it, greatest. It, it's anything with the EST on the end of the word, the most important, or it's, it's just the most extreme. It's, it's the top... What's, what's the right way to explain Here, here's, what Here's what it says because I, I Googled this too. <laughs> the, the highest quality or degree, and then the synonyms are, and I mean, this just sounds like a conference talk, just the, just the list of synonyms. <laughs> Excellent, magnificent, wonderful, marvelous, supreme, <laughs> consummate, outstanding, remarkable, fine, choice, first Okay, rate. enough, Thomas Monson. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking Oaks on that one. Yeah. <laughs> the most, most, most important thing we can do in this life... This is the most, most important knowledge on earth. It is the most, most, most direct of any book on earth. The most, most important. This is obviously the most, most, most important message that God the Father could possibly give to his children. And the malicious spread of misinformation by some of the most, 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 most powerful figures in our society on these platforms is one of the biggest, 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 biggest problems we have. Our society has been poisoned, verifiably poisoned, by lies. The antidote to the lies of Trump and his enablers can't be the lies of the left. We need an intellectually honest, intellectually honest, intellectually honest, intellectually honest discussion about what's going on in the world. What occurred at the Capitol was in every way unsurprising. Every way, every way, every way, every way. In a way, it was absolutely, 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 absolutely perfect. But it had none, 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 none of the gravitas of a real coup. But it fully, 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 fully degraded our country. If you don't see a difference between that and a BLM protest that devolves into looting and arson, take a moment and try. There is no analogy, no analogy, no analogy, no analogy to be drawn here. And it was only due to a total, 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 total failure of security that more people didn't die. There is nothing, 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 nothing incompatible between mindfulness and not wanting to lose a cyber war. There is no contradiction, no, contradiction, no contradiction between what I'm saying now and how I'm saying it. But that doesn't mean that we should acquiesce to the ruination of everything, 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 everything intellectually honest. Many people on the left are interpreting the utter failure, 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 failure of law enforcement to protect the capital this week. Everyone, 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 everyone has tried to stick this woke landing. And there is endless footage, endless, endless, endless footage of BLM protests gone wrong using this abomination that occurred at the Capitol as yet another opportunity to score a social justice point is frankly idiotic and is incredibly divisive. It convinces everyone, 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 everyone right of center that their cynicism and blind partisanship is totally, 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 totally justified. 
those cops got completely, 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 completely screwed. And this pseudo insight is now raining down from on high, from every, 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 every liberal voice in the media. I'm genuinely concerned that we have tens of millions of people in Trumpistan now who are, for all intents and purposes, totally unreachable, totally unreachable, totally unreachable, totally unreachable. We need an intellectually honest discussion. And I want to reiterate something that Sam said. You know, he said that the antidote to the lies of Trump and his enablers cannot be the lies of the left. Or of, I just want to add to that, the lies of anyone or anywhere. Lies or untruths. And, and I include exaggerations into that as being something that is an exaggeration of the truth. I, I just don't see it as being helpful. It concerns me when I hear that because of the way that it ramps up the nervous system. And uh, I, I think that you can still care about these issues and still actively work to improve things without the excess hyperbole. All right. Back to the dust. So some of the books that I've been reading recently within the last month, some within the last year, that have been really helpful and informed me on these paths. The, the first one I want to mention is Byron Katie's Loving What Is. And the things that I talked about on the podcast about should really came to me from that book because she spends a lot of time talking about should I, and and it, it just makes sense to me that there's there's what is and then there's what you wish they were that aren't what is and and what is there in the distance in between of what is and what you wish what what you think things should be different like that's a fiction that's fictional space that's not reality it's not what is it's what you want it to be so we can work to, to bridge that gap that's that's why I said in the podcast and in, in you know what I'm saying isn't let's not I, I'm not saying don't work for a better future of course work for a better future if you say things should be better than they are right now well then let's do what we need to do to make them better but if you're saying right now in this moment this person should feel a different way than they do or in the past this should have happened differently than it did that's ignoring the objective true reality of everything that went into making that thing happen and so it's, it's living in a fictional world. And I don't think that that's intellectual integrity. I think that that's fooling ourselves. And I, th I think it's really, really rampant that we fool ourselves in this should fictional landscape. So Byron Katie proposes four very simple questions whenever there's something that is annoying us. And, and she suggests that we start doing this, focusing on other people that, that annoy us rather than focusing on ourselves just to kind of get, get the, the basics down. But these four questions are, is it true? How do you know that it's true? How does the belief that it's true make you feel? Like, wh what is the reaction in the real world of believing that this thing is true? And then fourth, what would you be if you didn't believe it was true? How would it be different? It's, it's, a, it's really simple. But it's really, really powerful. And then she also does these, these turnaround things. Like you take a statement like, uh, my wife should listen to me more. Okay. Is that true? <laughs> that she should listen to me more? Like right now in this moment, should she be listening to me more? 
going through that whole thing. Anyway, I, I would recommend this book. Turning it around, I should listen to my wife more. My wife should listen to me more. Like, explore these different, uh, different spins on it as you turn it around. And then ask those same four questions to the turnarounds. And it's, it's a really powerful process. So I'd recommend that book to anybody who's interested in this kind of stuff. Another one is called Inner Size. And it's a way of understanding this brain, this, this hardware system that we inherited through our biology that's been evolving for so long. And he's, he's got this chapter where he talks about the two brains. I mean, this is a metaphor. We've only got one brain, physical brain. But there's the conscious part that we're aware of. And then there's the unconscious part, which is pretty much everything else that regulates our body's hormones, that beats our heart, that you know, that does all of these things that our, our brain, our nervous system is doing, but we're not aware of. And that's the area Sam Harris talks about a lot. These automatic, unconscious programs, thought programs that are in our mind that do we really have free will or are we automatons that are just responding to this subconscious brain of ours? It's interesting, interesting question. So Inner Size uh, gives tools, um, suggestions on how to tune down the when the, the alarm bells, when we feel ourselves getting really, really stressed out, how do we calm down so that we can then use our brain better that conscious part of our brain better so I, I would recognize I recommend the book Inner Size it's great and then I, I've talked about these books before Michael Singer The Untethered Soul and then there's an audio book called Living from a Place of Surrender which is eight lectures that he gives and I, I did a three part series with Bill Real called The Infant Path of Surrender where we talked about these ideas and principles but that's been immensely helpful to me in understanding why my subjective reality is the way that it is because I live in a world of objective reality and yet as it comes in through my physical senses and is filtered through my thoughts and my feelings my subjective reality is different than anybody else's subjective reality and that's where I am all the time I can't escape from it never and uh, so what do I do with it It, that's been so helpful understanding that better and then David Hawkins letting go um, he, he gives this analogy of a, a map of consciousness where he talks about different emotions like grief shame, fear, anger, pride courage, neutrality, acceptance rationality, love, peace he spends a lot of time talking about each one of them, kind of the pros and the cons of each one, he's not saying they're all bad or they're all good what does it mean when you're in one of those spaces? And I, I recorded something. I, I've published it before. I think I'll put it again right here that comes from letting go of different ways that you could respond to the very same situation. So you've got the objective reality of your car getting hit by another car, a little fender bender in the parking lot. That's objective reality. It really happened. Now your response to it how you feel about it, what you're thinking about it, is your subjective reality to, in reaction to that objective reality. And there's a whole range of things that it could be. Now, do you have any choice? Do you have any power over it? Let's say, for example, that we parked our car 
and just as we get out, the car parked in front of us backs up into our car with a thud. Our bumper and the front fender are dented. Here are some different responses, and, and try to identify yourself. How would you respond if this happened to you? If you're responding out of shame, it might be, how embarrassing. I'm such a lousy driver. I can't even park a car. I'll never amount to anything. Or it could be a guilt response. I had it coming. How stupid I am. I should have done a better job parking. Response from apathy. What's the use? Things like this always happen to me. I probably won't collect on the insurance anyway. There's no use talking to the guy. He'll just sue me. Life stinks. Grief. Now the car is ruined. It'll never be the same. Life is grim. I'll probably lose the bundle on this one. Fear. This guy is probably furious. I'm afraid he'll hit me. I'm afraid to talk back to him. He'll probably sue me. I'll probably never get the car fixed right again. Car repair people always rip me off. The insurance company will probably get out of this one, and I'll be the one left holding the bag. Desire. I can make a bundle on this one. I think I'll hold my neck and fake a whiplash. My brother-in-law's a lawyer. We'll sue the pants off this idiot. I'll get a settlement on the highest estimate and get it fixed at a cheaper place. Anger. The damned idiot. I think I'll teach this guy a lesson. He deserves a good punch in the nose. I'll sue his pants off and make him suffer. My blood is boiling. I feel shaky with rage. I could kill the bastard. Pride. Look where you're going, you fool. Oh, God. The world is full of such bumbling idiots. How dare he damage my new car? Who the hell does he think he is? He's probably got cheap insurance. Thank God mine is the best. Courage. Oh, well. We both got insurance. I'll take down the data and handle it okay. A nuisance, but I can handle it. I'll talk to the driver and get it settled out of court. Neutrality. These things happen in life. You can't drive 20,000 miles a year without an occasional fender bender. Willingness. How can I help the guy calm down? He doesn't need to feel upset about it. We'll just exchange the necessary insurance information and be okay with each other. Acceptance. It could have been worse. At least nobody's hurt. It's only money anyway. The insurance company will take care of it. I suppose the guy's upset. That's only natural. Such things just can't be helped. Thank God I'm not running this universe. It's only a minor nuisance. Reason. Let's be practical here. I'd like to take care of this as quickly as possible so I can get on with the day's activities. What's the most efficient way to resolve our problem? Love. I hope the guy isn't upset. I'll calm him down. He says to the other driver, relax, it's all okay. We've both got insurance. I know how it is. It happened to me just the same way. It was a minor dent and we got it fixed in a day. Don't worry, we won't report it if you don't want to. We can probably deduct it and avoid a raise in our insurance premiums. There's nothing to be upset about. He reassures the upset driver, putting an arm on his shoulder in fellow human camaraderie. And the last one, peace. Well. Isn't that fortuitous? I was going to have the rattle in my bumper fixed anyway, and the fender already had a little dent, so now I'll get it fixed for nothing. 
Say, aren't you George's brother-in-law? You're just the guy I wanted to see. I have some great business that I think you can handle for me. We'll both benefit. You look like the right person to research it for us. How about a cup of coffee and we talk it over? By the way, here's my insurance card. Say, that's the same company as yours. What a coincidence. Everything's working out for the best. No problem. Walks off humming with a new friend, the incident already forgotten. Okay, so that last one's a little a little over the top with Pete's, but you get the idea. Were you able to locate yourself in there? Like, how do you think your response would be? And do you have a choice? Do you have a choice on how to respond? So I, I recommend those books. So having said all of that, Mike, let me go back to your 10 claims and, and kind of address these one by one as quickly as I can. So claim one. You say there's an underlying reality that is available to anyone who wants to see it. Okay. Yeah. There is an underlying reality that is available to anybody who wants to see it. I think that what I just did is a description of that underlying reality. And is that something that you want to see? <laughs> is it? Is it something that other people want to see? Um and and maybe you're thinking something specifically about the reality of Trump being a horrible liar who is dividing our country. You know, the, I think you're talking specifically about the election results. And I, any of these these claims, like when I had that conversation with the coworker, and she's telling me about Trump just wants to improve things for people. <laughs> you know, like I, I think in that moment, wait a minute, there is an underlying reality here that's demonstrably, uh, that statement is demonstrably false. I can show you example after example of where Trump is not interested in improving people. Let's go to Trump University, for example. I mean, there, there's just so many places that we could go to show that that's not true. And here's this person that just doesn't want to see it. Okay, so that's true. But what do I do with it? What, what, what is the intellectually honest response to that truth? So I don't, I don't disagree that there's an underlying reality that's available to anyone who wants to see it. Yeah, there is. Claim two. The church's version of events doesn't really conform to that underlying reality. Yeah, in some ways it doesn't, in some ways it does. And I, I don't know, this, this is a big one that we could get into. But I... I the, the church the church creates an environment and the people in it respond to it in their own different way. And, and you've got this interchange between objective reality and subjective reality and intersubjective reality. And it's fascinating study and it's bigger than I'm going to put in a little blurb right here or even in a single podcast episode. But I, I, I don't disagree with you that the church... Uh, like the Book of Mormon, the stories in the Book of Mormon, this idea about Captain Moroni. Was there really a Captain Moroni? We can't know for sure, but we can be pretty sure. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that there wasn't. I'm pretty sure that Captain Moroni is a fictional character that was created out of the mind of Joseph Smith and is now uh, believed intersubjectively in the minds of millions of Mormons. And there's a power in that. But, you know, that doesn't make it objectively real. It, it only makes the intersubjective reality of it part of the objective reality world, if that makes any sense to you. But claim number three, 
You said that my approach of Captain Moroni's truth is his truth just ignores the fact that there is actually an underlying foundational reality that we can all choose to live in, but for a variety of reasons choose not to. Well, I, I don't think I'm ignoring that fact. I, I also, I, I, I'm curious, to, like, what is it that you think I'm saying when I, when I say, look, this guy's reality is his reality. I'm, it is. That is his subjective reality. That doesn't make it an objective reality. I'm not saying that. So the second part of that is really interesting because you say we can all choose this if we really want to, but there's a variety of reasons why we might choose not to. Bingo, man. I, of course. But here's my question that's another Sam Harris question. That choice, that, that free will, how much of that do we really have? And, and what do we need to do? to really get it and strengthen that free will so that we're not automatons that are just acting from subconscious thoughts and fears and worries and regurgitating things that we've heard other people say that we haven't really examined if they're true or not, but they become part of the fabric of our own mind. Because another thing that I've, I've learned this in many places, but that book Inner Sizes talks about it, the things that we focus on with our mind, our mind gets better at doesn't matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter if it's video games or fishing or just sitting and meditating or whatever it is. Complaining about people, telling the story of how I was wronged by this person or not. Like it creates these patterns in our mind that then become a filter through which we see the world. And and that is that is how subjective reality comes out of alignment with objective reality. Maybe I don't know. I just had that thought. What do you think about that? So th- this is what I'm really interesting. What are uh, interested in? What are the variety of reasons that people choose to believe what they believe? When it like I, I can't believe people would think that Trump is a good guy who just wants to help other people and just wants to make this country great again. It that doesn't make any sense to me in my mind, but it does to them in theirs. And I've got like. They want to be heard. And I want to be someone who's willing and able to hear them and really care about them. That's what I want for me. Claim number four. You say that the fiction of the Mormon church is not a fiction like the power of a state or the value of money that allows everybody to benefit by buying into its reality. It's a verifiably false, incredibly destructive position that doesn't conform to reality and not all fictions are created equal. I, I'm not going to agree with that statement 100%, uh, because there there are areas where, um, yes, the church is absolutely destructive. And for, for me personally, uh, like I mentioned in episode 704, the role that it played in helping me feed my own self-righteousness wasn't healthy for me. I didn't like that. Um, the way that it made me a, a, a bigot towards homosexuals, um, you know, there's all kinds of things that it wasn't healthy for me. But there's also a lot of people that it is working for. So I can't agree with you that it's not a fiction like the power of money. Because it is. It's exactly the same type of thing. That if you buy into it and you don't kick against the pricks, it's going to work for you. 
But when you start questioning it, when you start challenging it, when you start scribbling outside of the lines, that's when you've got a problem. But th- that's the same thing with money. It's the same thing with state. And, and the fiction of money, <laughs> you said, the money that allows everyone to benefit by buying into its reality. Really? You think that with the... I mean, Sam Harris also talks quite a bit about the, the, the wealth gap in our country and how exploiting people really isn't how and money is a huge the fiction of money that people buy into and the fiction of economy that people buy into and the fiction of the economy that we're living in right now that incentivizes people for exploiting other people like is that really mutually beneficial to everyone you know so it is it is complicated and i do agree with you not all fictions are created equal of course and and the way that people use the fictions even if there is an equal fiction the way that people respond to it can be very different like in that david hawkins example of being hit by a car and how you respond to it so that's my response to claim number four claim number five that flat earther gps example that you gave where we have to actually recognize scientific facts for that benefit to become available to us okay so are you saying right here mike that flat earthers who don't believe that the earth is round, the GPS in their phone doesn't work? That they have to actually recognize scientific facts for the benefit to become available to them? Is that your claim? Um, like if you, if you say to me, flat earthers believing that the earth is flat instead of round and getting um, validation or support from their group or whatever benefit they get from that belief. It still doesn't make the, the earth flat instead of round. I, I, I'll agree with you with that. But I, I don't really know. I don't really know how to respond to this one, Mike. Um, except that I, I don't agree with that. I don't think that you have to actually recognize scientific facts to have the benefit of them. I, I think that's quite apparent that most people don't understand. But, but if you are going to take that approach, what about understanding the scientific facts of our own biology and our nervous system and our mind and the way that things work and what it is that works us up into states of fear and panic and frenzy where we make decisions and choices and actions that probably would have been better if we would have made them from a more calm place and considering more options taking more time to deliberate no, no. all right claim number six the false belief that the election has somehow been stolen is a threat to you it's a threat to your children a threat to your country and to your entire way of life donald trump's lies and QAnon threaten the very existence of our country i want to be very very gentle with this one mike because i acknowledge that the subjective reality from your perspective is that this is a very real threat. And if I come in and I tell you, nah, it's not a threat, you're going to be pissed at me, <laughs> right? You're not, you're not going to want to hear what I have to say because I'm just invalidating you right off the bat. But I'm going to invalidate you on this one. I, I hate saying that. Forgive me for saying that. I'm not, I'm not going to invalidate you. Those fears are legitimate. Like if... if there really is a threat to you. Let's explore this idea. Threat how? Is, is, is your life at threat? Are you going to be killed? Are your children going to be killed? 
Is your country going to be wiped off the face of the map? Is your entire, entire way of life, the entire way, like every single aspect of your life at threat? Like what would the world really look like if, if Donald Trump was successful in this coup attempt and remained in power? for four more years or if if the country really did shift and we became uh, a dictatorship like like venezuela is probably the worst place that i can think of i used to do business i I used to to do international distribution channel management for a medical device company and i traveled all i traveled all over the world and worked with distributors in all kinds of countries and i did work with I, i never went to venezuela because of all of the the stuff going on in Venezuela, but I did work with Venezuelan distributors and their, their entire system, they couldn't get the, these medical device products to the patients because of the system. It was, it was a horrible place. Now, I don't want that. I don't want America to become like that. That, to me, is like an extreme. The, the things that would have to happen for that to happen, I, I, it just, yeah, we should absolutely caution against that. But I, I, I want to focus again on this language and this, this belief in your mind that there is a threat. What kind of threat is it? Is it a threat to your survival? Or is it a threat to your level of comfort in how you live? Because when I watch these nature documentaries and I see what happens, I see how life adapts when, when the conditions, when the environment becomes harsh and hostile life finds a way to adapt to it and if if our country if the freedoms that we have and that we enjoy today are taken away and there's a knock on my door from the secret police and saying we're taking you away because you've been putting this stuff out on a podcast and i go into jail which i've spent 24 hours in jail before i know what that's like it's not fun and i don't want i want to avoid that and so if i felt like boy, that's really going to happen. Yeah, I'd, I'd be up in arms too. But you, you asked me why I'm not terrified by this. I, I, I just have a hard time seeing it happen. I, I don't really think that we're millimeters away from having our entire democracy crumble. But I'll, I'll get to that because that's another one of your claims. So that's, that's my response to claim number six. I, I, I think that the examined fears and concerns take some deep breaths calming down doing that Byron Katie work on those thoughts in the mind is this really true is it really a threat what what would happen what would happen if the republicans are running things instead of the democrats would it really be armageddon would it really be the apocalypse uh, anyway, I'm not saying I want that to happen. I'm not saying that I want Donald Trump in power any longer than he is. I, I wish he was out long ago. I wish he hadn't been elected. But, you know, I, I'm not... Anyway, what can I say about that? Claim number seven. There has to be a way for us to be sympathetic to, to people who have been lied to and have believed the lies while also calling out the lies for what they are. Yeah, I like that. What, what do you think it is? What, what do you think the way is to be sympathetic? That was kind of why I, I diagnosed this whole situation as a problem of self-righteousness. Uh, 
that, you know, if, if I think that I'm right and they're wrong, I mean, I'm always going to have some version of that. It's inescapable. But when I let that get me into a position where I'm no longer willing or able to engage with people on the other side and I see them as a threat to my very existence, that's not the way to be more sympathetic to the people who have been lied to and have believed the lies. I, I think the way to do that is to listen to them and to find the areas of agreement and go, oh, yeah, yeah, if that is a threat, I, let's, let's work together to make sure that that doesn't happen. I'll be on your team to, to make sure that that threat doesn't happen. <laughs> and I know that sounds like simplistic, but I, I, don't, I don't know any other way. So I, I, I'm open to suggestions. Claim number eight. The there are very fine people on both sides argument just can't fly anymore. We have to find a way to get down to bedrock truths and rebuild our society on them going forward. Uh, this concerns me a little bit, Mike. The there are very fine people on both sides argument just can't fly anymore. Here's why that makes me nervous. <sighs> Because then what do you do, you know, what do you do with those people then? If you don't think that they're fine people, if you don't think that they are worthy of consideration and respect and you're dehumanizing them, what, what, what does that do to the way that you interact with them? What does that do to, to the fear that you have about them coming after you? I, I, I don't want to fall in I, I want to look at history and recognize the, the worst things that ever happened in history I think come from this kind of attitude where we just we, we can't think that the people who disagree with us are fine people the, the, the other book I read years ago you probably heard me talk about Jonathan Haidt The Righteous Mind Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion and then his follow-up book, The Coddling of the American Mind. I love Jonathan Hyde. Another strong recommendation here. I, I think it's so important to recognize that the people on the other side of the argument are fine people. For the most part. I mean, you've got your outliers who aren't. But for the most part, they are. So, yeah, I, I've got a concern with that one. Claim number nine that we're millimeters away from our democracy being in ashes right now rather than having survived the coup attempt and that our democracy is basically not strong is what you're saying and that it's only dumb luck that we didn't experience the complete 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 overthrow of our democracy by the opposition party the republicans is that true mike millimeters away from our democracy being in ashes right now? What, what would have to happen for our democracy to be in ashes? Does that mean that we no longer have the power to vote? Does that mean that we no longer have three operating bodies, governmental offices, our legislature and our judicial and our executive branch? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see how the people that sieged the capital, if they had been successful, what would that, how would that have 
destroyed our legislature and our judicial system and our executive system. I, I, now, I, I definitely have been concerned over these last four years about what's been going on at the executive level. But the, the, the system that we have was tested, and, and, and the system that we have was tested. The system that we have was tested. But I don't think we failed the test. I think we passed. And there was a cost to that system being tested. But what, why was the system tested? It's because we live in a, a, in a system that protects free speech and the freedom of assembly. That's what we want. That, that's, th- those are principles that our democracy are founded on. And they're healthy. They're still in place. I don't think we're millimeters away from them being taken away. If I'm wrong, I'm going to be disappointed. And, and life isn't going to be as great as it is for me right now. But I also believe that there will be people who will stand up and fight for it. Will fight to get it back. And I'd be one of them. But I don't think we're there yet. That's my opinion of it. And then claim number two. Talking about yourself, Mike. I would love to find a way to not feel like such a self-righteous asshole all the time these days, but I'm simply not willing to do it at the cost of my intellectual honesty. Why do you think that being self-righteous is being intellectually honest. I hope, I, I hope, Mike, that as I've walked you through my own thought processes with this issue, I hope that you don't look at me and think that I'm being intellectually dishonest. If you do see areas where I'm being intellectually dishonest, please point them out to me. Because I don't want to be intellectually dishonest either. But I also don't want to be self-righteous to the point where I'm putting up walls and I'm not addressing what I see as the problem. My, my, what I really see as the problem, I really see this as the problem, is that there are so many people who want to be heard and very few people who are willing and able to hear them. So how do I respond to that is to try to become one of those people who will be willing to hear it and not be so closed off in my own mind that I just shut that out. That's intellectual honesty for me, Mike. So once again, I want to thank you for sending in this message. And I hope that those of you who have listened to this, I hope it's made you think. I'd love to hear from you too. Whether you disagree with me or agree with me. What, what do you think? What, what is the solution to what's going on right now? If, if I am so off, you know, the, the, the other claim that you made, Mike, is that we need to get back to bedrock truths. Yeah, let's do it. What, what, propose it for me. What does it look like? What does the world look like? I propose the bedrock truth of our own evolved biology, of our own minds, and that we learn how to master our minds to better interact with all forms of life around us. Kumbaya. How, how do you take somebody who believes a lie 
and is super, super attached to that lie. What do you do with them? And I'm going to get all hippie on you and say you got to love them. That's what I think. That's how I'm intellectually honest. And I say these things in my own name. <laughs> Amen. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Hey there, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Now, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have more to say about this topic, and I'm going to do that with a follow-up behind-the-scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So, if you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Dashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on such a night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic.